0: Our Father, we know that this is your kingdom and that your kingdom will come here on earth one day as Christ returns. And yet, Father, we look forward to that eternal kingdom where we will forever dwell in your presence. Lord, we know that the kingdom of darkness is, is working overtime to try to uh, convince the world that you are not real. But, Father, we're grateful for the power of God manifested not only in the Word, but in our lives each day and and through the Church. We ask that as we study this passage of Scripture today, that you will speak to us according to our own individual and special needs. And we ask, above all, Lord, that as we finish looking at this passage, our lives will be filled with praise that we know the God of Israel and that we have come to believe in the Messiah, Of israel jesus christ who has become our lord and king and father i pray that our love for you will radiate from our being in all that we do and all that we say and that we will become believers in the inspired word of god and observers of its truth lord i ask you to bless in your powerful way throughout this complex this morning as your word is proclaimed in jesus name amen If you will turn to the first chapter of Judges, first chapter of Judges, I would like to read beginning at verse 22. Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them and the house of Joseph spied out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz and the spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, please show us the entrance to the city and we will treat you kindly So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and his family go free. And the man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luz, which is to the capture of one single relatively small walled city. Now you know that this city became a city of great historical significance to Israel. Today there is an Arab village there on the side of Bethel. Uh, It's just across the little valley from the ruins of Ai, or or Ai. And today it's not a particularly significant place. But in the history of Israel, it it was very, very important. If you go clear back 700 years before the conquest to the time of Abraham, we, we discover that Abraham camped just outside of the city of Bethel. He camped in the little saddle between Bethel and Ai and there he built an altar an altar to the lord his god abraham the nomad if you will camped there and he built one of the of the altars that he built in canaan right there outside the walls of that city which was called luz in those days or luz about 150 years later his grandson a man by the name of jacob you remember when he fled from his brother esau because esau was a threat to him because he had stolen his brother's birthright as he fled he came to the site of bethel he was headed for Paden aram which was where the family had some other relatives and of course he would marry a cousin up there a couple of them actually leah and uh, rachel but on his way he stopped at this particular site and while he was sleeping he had a dream which we know as the jacob's ladder dream right there outside the walls of what became later known as Bethel in the 28th chapter of Genesis we read and he this is Jacob called the name of that place Bethel however previously the name of the city had been Luz. so it is Jacob who gave the city its name or that site its name Bethel later after he was coming back from paden Aram and he had come into Canaan and had been at Shechem for a while. God said to him, "Go to Bethel, where I appeared to you and where sort of you might say Jacob made his initial commitment to God to serve him." And he said, "Go there and and live there for a while." And he did and he and he went to that particular site, site and he built an altar. And he named the altar El Bethel, which means "the God of the house." of God because Beth is house, El is God. So Bethel means the house of God. Let me read the circumstances of that because it's very interesting. From the 35th chapter of uh, Genesis, God said, the first verse of of Genesis 35, then God said to Jacob, now he's living at Shechem and he had all that hassle, you know, remember with his daughter Dinah and the prince Shechem there, and they had slain the men of Shechem because of The prince of Shechem had raped his daughter Dinah. So then God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. And they journeyed there as they journeyed a great terror. There was a great terror upon the cities that were around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El-Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. And then it also says that Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died there. Jacob was, was a man who, as we know, his name meant supplanter, and he had tried to take away his uh, brother's birthright and successfully did that. And God had predicted that that would happen. And it would be, therefore, Jacob who would be the progenitor of the nation of Israel. But he met God at at Bethel the first time. And on his way back, he commemorated that. And you'll notice in order for him and his family to go there and commit themselves to the God which he had seen in his vision, they had to clean out all the bad stuff. All the little images that they had brought with them from Paden Aram had to be buried there under an oak tree at Shechem so that they would go before God without the trappings of the world and of paganism in their midst. Which, of course, tells us something about Jacob's relatives that were still living up in Paden Aram. They were not the followers of Yahweh. They were as pagan as had been their ancestor Terah who had lived over in Mesopotamia and had come over here to Haran and and then to Paden-Aram region and continued to worship foreign gods. So God called Abraham out of that and he called Isaac and he called Jacob out of that. And then they dedicated this place, El Bethel. Now, the question is, why is Bethel the object of this particular passage? Because if you go back to Joshua, You remember that when they attacked the city of Ai or Ai, that it said that the army, the king and the army of Bethel came out and fought with Israel also and the whole crew was defeated. So if the army and king of Ai was was defeated and the army and the king of Bethel was defeated, how come they're still having to deal with this city again? Well, the only thing we can assume is that Bethel was not permanently occupied by Israel after its army and king were defeated. Somehow they must have ignored it. They didn't didn't think it was that significant, so they had moved on. And it had reverted back to its uh, Canaanite population. And so here we have this account. Now Bethel was actually in the territory allotted to Benjamin. So if you look at this, Benjamin has this narrow little strip here. And uh, Bethel is is right in the fatter part of the uh, territory of Benjamin there and it was allotted to Benjamin. However, the army which is to destroy the city of Bethel is not Benjaminite. The passage tells us that it's an army of the Ephraimites and the Manassites. Ephraim and Manasseh, you'll notice, are immediately north. Here's Benjamin, then Ephraim is this spot and Manasseh is further north, so immediately north. It apparently is that Benjamin had done nothing about Bethel, and the Ephraimites living so close to this pocket of paganism didn't want it there, so they said to their brothers, why don't you come down and help us, and we'll wipe out this pocket of paganism. Well, we have an interesting story here, and it sounds a little weird when you read about it. The spies, in verse 24, saw a man come out of the city, and they said to him, show us the entrance to the city. The you know, show us the entrance to the city. Well, you know, the road goes right to the entrance of the city. You follow the road, and you'll come to the entrance of the city. So, obviously, that cannot be its meaning. They weren't stupid. It was, it's, it's obvious they were not interested in, in a bloody siege, or a fl- frontal attack, or, or a long-term siege. Uh, they, they weren't willing to wait around until this city would succumb to uh, being strangulated by a surrounding army. So... What they have done is they sent some spies forward and and the army was out of sight and this guy was coming out and so they accosted him and they said, hey, show us how to get into this city so that we don't have to have a siege or a bloody frontal assault and we will preserve you and your family. Well, the guy, of course, knew about Israel and there were the ruins of Ai were right over there to prove it. And, you know, the land was conquered and the army was just around the corner. Maybe they took him and said, look, here's all our troops. Well, probably were more soldiers than there were people living in the city of Bethel. And, and so he says, Okay, I will show you a secret or unguarded way into the city. That's got to be what this is saying here. Because everybody knew where the gate of the city was. It was quite obvious. So there had to be that they were looking for a way to get into the city, or they were saying to him, Come down at three o'clock in the morning. And, uh, you know, bop the century on the head and open the gate to us. You know, something like that. It had to be something whereby they would get into the city without a fight. That is what they're saying to him. Well, what is interesting is the man agreed. They took the city. It says in verse 25, he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and his family go free. But then what does it say? And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luz, which is its name to this day. Now, when you read about that, my mind immediately went back to Jericho and to Rahab. And Rahab had protected the spies and therefore Israel promised that she and her family would be protected. And what happened to Rahab? She married one of the leaders of Israel, leader of Judah, and and her family became in effect Israelite. But what about this man? Does he say, oh wow, you know, where I'm gonna be saved, so I better make sure that I adopt the God of Israel and live amongst Israel. He says, no, I'm out of here. So what is he saying? He says, I don't want anything to do with you or with your God. Now, the nearest Hittite territory was about 250 miles to the north. So this guy had to go on a hike with his family to get all the way up there, uh, which would be in basically what would be uh, Western Syria today. And and so he headed to the north. Now, the Hittites had a large kingdom up in um, what is today Turkey. And at one time, the Hittite empire was very large. It was the major rival of Egypt in the second millennium before Christ. And it was sort of tailing off by this time that we're reading about. But the Hittites had been scattered around and they were living in different places in the land. In fact, you'll discover that Abraham knew Hittites when he lived at Hebron. So it's very possible since this specifically says that he migrated to the land of the Hittites that he himself was probably a Hittite living there in this Canaanite city and So he took his family and and he migrated north and rebuilt the city and named it for the after the city Ancient name of the city which was Luz which means almond tree and he must have had some kind of an affair, you know, an affinity for almond Tree. So anyway, he names his new town which he establishes almond Tree. Could mean, of course, that he had a long heritage living in that city, that his father and grandfather had been there, so to him it was an important place. But the tragedy of this is that this man turned his back on the kingdom of God and chose the broad way. That leads to destruction, to continue to follow the paganism that he had grown up in and that the Hittites practiced as well as all the other people of this part of the world and would not yield to the obviously powerful God of Israel. And, and to me, that tells the story of so many people today. They know what the truth is. They have heard the truth. They have seen the truth, seen the truth demonstrated, but they refuse to yield to the God of Israel. Let's read on at verse 27. But Manasseh did not take possession of Bethsyon and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants, <laughs> inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, or the, Canaan, so the Canaanites persisted in living in the land. And it came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Neither did Ephraim drive the Canaanites, drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Catron or the inhabitants of Nahal. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Aqzeb or Helba or of Aphek or Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, and the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced labor for them. Now as you read that, you ought to weep for Israel. Um, this passage is a passage that testifies concerning the tragic lack of faith and obedience on the part of the northern tribes. Now the tribes we just read about are the tribes that live right up in here. Asher, Naphtali, Zebulon, Issachar, Manasseh, Ephraim, right? Central to north uh, part of the nation of Israel. Five of the six tribes that live in that northern area are mentioned. In each case, we read that they failed to drive out Canaanites who lived in the land. And in many cases, they failed to drive the Canaanites out of strategically located cities. Not just some old village over in a hill someplace. An extremely important city, which they failed to conquer. And what is interesting to me, because as I read that list and then I went back to the Joshua list of the cities that were given to the Levites, nearly half of the cities listed were Levitical cities. Now what that tells you is that the tribes are saying, "Ah, we've got to give it to the Levites anyway, so why put out the effort? Forget it. (laughs) Which tells you something about their attitude towards God. You know, God wants to give it to Levites, so we, we won't worry about that city too much. We won't put out the effort. Not all of them were that way, but almost half of those cities listed, maybe a third of them actually, were actually supposed to become Levitical cities. Now, Manasseh. Manasseh is, is the big tribe here in the middle. We're not talking about the part of Manasseh that was over in Bashan, over in, on the other side of the Jordan, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We're just talking about the half-tribe that lived in the central part here of the nation the, of Canaan. Manasseh was greatly weakened by its failure to capture the cities that are listed there. Now, if you read down through that list and you have no knowledge of the geography of Israel, you know, it's just a bunch of cities. But if you look at this list, it says they didn't capture Beshan, They didn't capture Tanakh. They didn't capture, uh, door's not terribly important, but Iblem and Megiddo. Now. Let's go back in our thoughts to to ancient history and and even in medieval history. When when the Crusaders captured Palestine from the from the Turks and the Arabs uh, back in the 11th century and into the 12th century, the only way a few thousand Crusaders could hold that land against all those Turks and Arabs was to build forts at strategic locations Hilltops which overlooked broad areas and controlled major routes Now if you can translate that thinking to here, this is what we're talking about here Besson One of the cities didn't capture now. It doesn't show it on this map But if you if you can look at this map of the regions here and you look in the Jordan Valley Which is right down here and you'll notice right up here. It says Besson Valley Just to the left off the Jordan River south of the Sea of Galilee Well, that's a valley which comes out of the Jordan Valley and goes through a very narrow defile into the large uh, plain of Azdralin or Jezreel Valley up here. Okay, that narrow defile is between the mountains to the north and Mount Gilboa to the south. Beshan is right on that narrow, constricted area. So Beshan controlled the, the travel from the Jezreel Valley into the Jordan Valley. So they were yielding the most strategic position that, that uh, they had on the east side of that possession. They did not capture the key city to the east. And what's interesting is that Bashan will remain in non-Israelite hands for most of its history. For a period of time during the reign of David and Solomon, it would be in Israelite hands. But later on, it would become one of the cities of the Decapolis. In Jesus' day, there were 10 cities. That's why it's called Decapolis, 10 cities that were controlled by the, um, basically Greek heritage people, and most of them were over in, on the other side of the Jordan River, not in, in Israel, but one of them was in Israel, and that was Beshan, it was known as Sithophilus in, the New Testament times, and, and so that city very rarely was in Israelite hands. In fact, when we get to, if we ever do, and if that's what the Lord leads us to do, we get to the story of Saul, the king of Israel. We discover that his body was nailed to the walls of Bethshan after he was killed on Mount Gilboa. It was in Philistine hands at that time. It's not at this time in Philistine hands, but it will eventually be captured by the Philistines. So Bethshan was a very sad <coughs> failure. But that's not the only one. Tanakh, Iblim and Megiddo were also very key cities. Now, if you look at this map again, you'll notice the Jezreel Valley butts up against the Shephelah, portion of the Shephelah here, and the hill country of Ephraim. The Jezreel Valley is a large open plain. It's almost flat. Uh, over on east side of it is Mount Tabor, which stands out like a sore thumb sticking up there, but it's mostly flat. And as you go south, however, you hit Mount Carmel, which rises up rather abruptly, and the hill country of Ephraim. Now, in order to get from the plains, along the coast here, plain of Sharon, into the Jezreel Valley, you've got to go around Mount Carmel because it's like a big wall sticking out there, and the hill country of Ephraim. So to get through there, you have to go through narrow valleys, and those three cities control three of those valleys. They sit right smack where that valley empties out in the Jezreel Valley. So Tanakh, Iblim, and Megiddo were strategic cities for controlling the traffic, and that was the main route of traffic through the Jezreel Valley to the Plain of Sharon, right through there. You couldn't just, I mean, you could, I suppose, but you didn't just hike up over a mountaintop with your goods. You went through the roads, and you followed through the valleys, and here were these pagan cities controlling the trade. So it was like, eh, you know, this is the way they were dealing with Manasseh. Uh, by c- not capturing those cities, the, they, they were strangulated, in their trade and in their control of the region, it was these weren't just any old cities to not capture; they were very important cities. They failed to capture. Similarly, with the uh, case of Asher, Asher, you'll notice is the tribe that was up on the north coast. See this bump right here on the coast of Israel? That's Mount Carmel sticking out into the sea. Okay, Mount Carmel is right there. It runs northwest, southeast, right through here and Asher came down to the northern slope of the mountain and up north. The territory that was allotted to them was territory that had been in the hands of the Canaanites who became known as Phoenicians. (coughs) And as you read this, you discover they did not capture Akko or Sidon. And it mentions some other cities too. But the two key cities are Akko and Sidon. Because they were principal seaports on the Mediterranean coast in the territory that was supposed to be that of Asher. Had they captured Akko, which is located, you you notice the bump right here. Well, if you go up the coast, you see just a little jog right there, and that's where Akko is. Akko today is, is, is a major city. By the way, right here in this little bay where this bump is, that's where Haifa is modern city of Haifa, which is the main port of Israel today. It's where the US Navy parks its ships when they go in here to Israel. They park right there at, at Haifa. Well, you can see Akko from Haifa right across the bay there. Akko was, was made into a major crusader castle, fortified city in, in the um, 12th century. But it was a principal seaport. There was no Haifa in those days, but there was Akko. And then there was Sidon further to the north. By failing to capture these cities, Asher not only allowed the Phoenicians to remain strong, but gave up the possibility of becoming themselves a major seafaring tribe. They could have been a major seafaring tribe, but by not capturing those principal port cities, they gave up that possibility. The other cities mentioned are not as militarily or economically as important, although one of them was to be. A Levitical city but they served as a constant reminder to Asher and all of Israel of their failure to trust God completely and it also provided centers for the constant reinfection of Israel with the paganism of these people now Issachar is the only one of the six northern tribes that is not mentioned From silence about Issachar, we can assume possibly that there were no cities that they left uncaptured. If so, Issachar is the only tribe to obey God and completely pick out all of the pagan towns and pockets uh, within its territory. But we're just arguing from silence in saying that. Now, in verse 27, it says at the end of verse 27, So the Canaanites persisted in living in the land. Canaanites persisted in living in the land. And as I thought about that, it just so reminded me of sin. Sin in our lives. Sin persists. The Canaanites would not leave unless they were driven out. God said, I sent the hornet before you. By that he meant he sent the terror of Israel, the terror of the God of Israel, into the hearts of the Canaanites. And we remember what uh, Rahab testified. She said, the people in the city, their hearts have melted because of you. But melted hearts don't mean moving people. They never fled unless they were actually attacked by Israel and what's interesting is the power of the army of Israel which drove out the Canaanites was not its spear or its sword or its bow because the Canaanites had all those things but was their faith and obedience to God that was the absolute power and key to Israel's victory likewise sin does not automatically leave because you become a born-again Christian you probably have noticed that sin persists It is only defeated if we attack it in the name of God and in the power of God. If we sit back and and simply exist as a Christian, sin persists. It does not leave. Israel claimed to have faith in God, but the Canaanites were not driven out unless they turned that faith into action and actually drove out. The Canaanites and wherever that faith was not put, in, put into action what happened the Canaanites stayed right there in their midst and as you le- read that list there are a bunch of cities there we're not just talking about one little corner over here one little corner over there I mean they were like chicken pox you know all over the body by the same token we who claim faith cannot defeat sin in our lives unless we act in obedience God's Word. It is the key. That is why there is so much effort today to downplay God's Word. (laughs) I was reading, you probably get the Citizen magazine as we do, but it was telling the story of a Texas Episcopal bishop who believed, as many in the liberal church do believe today, that, you know, the Bible is okay, it's a good book, got some good things in it, But, hey, it's all oriented towards the time in the past. And it doesn't speak to today because we're a different society and culture today. But then God spoke to him and said, no. (laughs) I mean, God spoke to this man and said, you must believe in me and believe that this is the authority by which you live. It's the divinely inspired word of God. And he became a transformed man. And and now he's inspiring uh, almost like a revival within the Episcopal Church people returning to their roots of faith, and it all has to do, of course, with, with the idea of, uh, of uh, ordaining homosexuals and this kind of thing, and, and, you know, blessing gay marriages and all of this kind of thing. This is what kind of uh, has stimulated uh, his um, action. We must act in obedience to the word, and the same is true not only for us individually, but it's true for the church collectively. This has got to be the guide for how the church functions. And we find ourselves often culturally adjusting and deciding to live as a church according to our culture. Because our culture says, well, if you stick right to the Word of God, you're a bigoted, narrow-minded, uh, her- you know, lunatic. And, and they start describing people as uh, being, uh, you know, uh, harsh and unloving and critical. And there are people like that, unfortunately. But to live according to the Word of God is not to be a bigot as long as love is displayed, you know. Speak the truth, we're told, in love, not in self-righteousness or in anger, but in love. I'd like to turn to the second chapter of James. James really, I think, speaks to this issue very loudly. Reading at verse 14, James 2.14, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and tremble. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result the of the works, faith was perfected, completed, demonstrated. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. He is not, of course, talking about salvation by works here. He is talking about the fact that if there are no works, there is no faith. And he's saying faith must come first, of course. In fact, when you go back to that 21st verse where it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You have to realize, as he says two verses later, that Abraham believed God was reckoned to him as righteousness, that precedes his offering of Isaac on Mount Moriah because it's in the 15th chapter of Genesis where it says he uh, believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness, and it was in the 21st chapter that uh, he offered up Isaac. So the work of offering Isaac simply perfected, proved, demonstrated the faith that was in Abraham's heart. Now, we notice in this passage that the demons are terrorized by the truth and power of God. They know it's real. I mean, they know a lot more than we do about all of this. I mean, they know the spiritual warfare is real. They know that the evil spirits are real because they are one, you know. They is one or whatever. And they're terrified by the power of God. And they shudder, we're told. And James, of course, in the passage tongue in cheek says, Yeah, you believe that. You really do. Well, you know, big deal. The demons even believe that. Does the fact, however, that they are terrorized and that they shudder, does that render them powerless against the church or against individual Christians? Absolutely not. Were the Canaanites rendered powerless because they were afraid of God and of Israel? Apparently not. They didn't get all driven out, right? And the next passage we're going to be going to tells us that they went on the, the offensive and they drove Dan back. They took cities away from Dan. Huh? What's going on here? Where's the God of Israel? The God of Israel has not changed. Israel has changed. The only way that the demons and the, and the spiritual forces of darkness are rendered powerless is by faith based obedient action we obey the word of God in faith and then they are defeated in the fourth chapter of James we read submit therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee our faith must result in two actions that first action is intentional submission to God's will and power in that incident We face a crisis in our lives. We're facing an attack by the evil one. And remember, the scripture tells us that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle with principalities and powers. The events in our lives, if we are born again Christians who are attempting to live the life that God has called us to do, the things that happen to us are not accidents. They are intentional by the forces of evil to try to derail us. I'm not saying there's a demon behind every bush. But when something or someone is just aggravating you and turning you into something that you don't want to be, the evil forces of darkness are behind that. Whoever the person might be or whatever the event might be, behind it in what's acting upon you are the forces of darkness. And so the scripture tells us that we must submit first to God. And so we specifically say, God, to you, I submit in this situation. And then the second thing we must do is resist the forces of hell that are attempting to establish a spiritual stronghold there. So in the power of God, we can resist because we have victory in Christ. If Israel had gone forth by submitting to God and moving to the offensive, no Canaanites would have remained. No Canaanites would have, they would have all been driven out all the way to Sidon, way up the coast of Phoenicia and all the way down into the desert. I mean, it would have all been theirs. Peter informs us that we must resist the devil by remaining firm in our faith, and that our resistance will probably result in some suffering. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I know that we live in a world today where the health and wealth gospel is constantly being preached by some, If you're really a Christian, you're a child of the king, and therefore you should always be wealthy and healthy. Well, there must not be very many children of the king, if that is true. Because the scripture clearly tells us that we will be tempted, we will be forced to to be subject to tribulation, and we will suffer in this world. And if you become a soldier for Christ, when we are soldiers for Christ, we do suffer. Because when you're in a battle, you are wounded. Fighting is not fun. Especially fighting like we're talking about where you're standing nose to nose with the other guy and trying to hack through his shield and, you know, and kill him and he's trying to do the same to you. But it's all worthwhile because ultimately, as Peter tells us in, the first, in his first letter in the fifth chapter, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, Israel... Would have been Confirmed perfected confirmed strengthened and established in Canaan all of Canaan no pockets of paganism Had they persisted had they submitted to God and had they resisted the Canaanites and driven them out as God Empowered them to do and commanded them to do but what happened? same thing happened to them that has happened to much of the church in America America American, middle-class, comfortable Christianity. We go to church, we fellowship with all the believers, you know, we feel good about ourselves, we sing these songs that make us feel good, and then we go out into the world and whammo. We become comfortable. We don't like anything to upset our comfortable Christianity like hard things that come along which might challenge us to say, well, wait a minute, the Word of God says this. How come we're not doing that? Well, you know, we don't want to be narrow-minded. We've we, you know, we, we got to adapt to our culture. Well, God has never adapted to human culture because He is the all-sovereign, unchanging God of the universe. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of, of Abraham is our God today, and we must adapt to Him, not vice versa. And his word is unchanging, forever settled in heaven. It is not the product of human invention. It is the product of the superintendency of the Spirit of God. It is truth. And we must adhere to that truth and live according to that truth. And when we bend it and say, well, you know, our culture accepts it more this way, so let's go that way. Well, that's to violate the word of God, and that's to be rendered powerless, and that's to keep the Canaanites in our midst. Israel became satisfied with what they had conquered. It's too hard! The Canaanites have walls. they got iron chariots. We're tired. We don't want to fight anymore. Let's just settle down here. we got enough. We don't need any more. We'll just ignore them. They'll ignore us. In fact, when we're strong, they'll serve us. They didn't want to put out the effort or experience the suffering because suffering went along with the conquest. It wasn't like Israel just you know, moved out across the landscape and defeated the enemy 200 to nothing. You know, uh, When they fought, people were hurt. Energy was expended. Soldiers got tired out there. In fact, later on, you read the story of David when he chased after some Amalekites who had captured a city. It says 200 of his guys were and they couldn't go any further, so he left them behind to watch the stuff while he went along with 400 other guys who apparently had a little more stamina. Were they con- condemned for doing that? No. Well, in the book of Judges, in the first chapter, at three different locations in the passage we read, it says that when Israel became strong, the Canaanites served them with forced labor. Canaanites served them with forced labor. Whoa, the price of that forced labor. The price of that forced labor was that the Canaanites remained in their midst as centers for paganism and idolatry, which creeped out into Israel and infected Israel like cells from a cancer tumor. The cost of that forced labor was so high as to have been totally worthless. They would have been... A thousand times better off they had wiped out or driven out all the Canaanites so there would not have been those centers of paganism in their midst. Far better than whatever the value was of the forced labor that any of those Canaanites gave them over any length of time. It didn't matter. But Israel, like we, have a tendency to measure everything in human terms and worldly terms, rather than in spiritual and eternal terms. And to realize that to win a small little gratification in the physical realm at the price of compromising the spiritual area is not worth it at all. Not worth it at all. Just to establish peace with our society so nobody looks at us as bigots. You know, we all want to be... I mean, who likes to go out and have somebody talking behind their back about it? You know, this guy's a a real evangelical Christian, you know, one of those nutcakes. Who likes that? But it's better to be referred to as a nutcake than it is to compromise with the world and have no power, no no testimony, nothing that would draw anybody else into the kingdom of God. Joining churches, what does that make? Doesn't make a bit of difference. It's joining the real kingdom of God that transforms our lives, the church, and expands God's work in this world. Well, we'll stop there. We'll finish the first chapter Next week, uh, we'll look at the little tribe of Dan. There's quite a story behind the little tra- tribe of Dan. It's a very important tribe because later on, one of the most famous, possibly the single most famous of all the judges comes from the tribe of Dan. His name is Samson. And uh, what happens to Dan has a whole lot to do with who Samson became as we come to, to him.